Have you ever found yourself in a situation where it would have been better if you had said less? It happens to all of us, you know. I've been married almost 32 years, and I'm still lining that gift, learning that gift to, to know when to just to stop talking. Like, like the camper who was in the mountains of the Pacific Northwest, he was camping, and he built a fire, and he was roasting a bird over the fire. He began to eat it when a park ranger showed up. The park ranger began to make conversation with him and asked him what he was eating for supper. And the man said, it's a seagull, which brought a frown to the park ranger's face because seagulls, it's illegal to kill them and to eat them. And he told the camper that and said, I'm sorry, but I'm going to have to, I'm going to, have to write you a citation. There's a pretty sizable fine as well. And the, and, and the, the camper began to protest and told this story how he'd been hiking in the woods. He lost, got lost and he'd eaten all his food and and he was at the place where he had no other options, so he, he caught the seagull and began to eat it. And uh, the ranger had mercy on him. And as mercy, as he began to turn away, the ranger asked him, by the way, I'm just curious, I never had it, what does seagull taste like? And he said, well, somewhere between a spotted owl and a bald eagle. <laughs> so, so sometimes it's better to, to, to say less, isn't it? The same might also be said of the text we're studying today as we continue our sermon series through portions of the Gospel of Mark. We might be tempted that it would have been better for Jesus if he had just simply said less. If he had just kind of closed his mouth and, and said less. And, and that's the way it begins um, in this passage we're looking at in Mark 14. And if we had been in Jesus' shoes, facing what he faced, most of us probably would have held back. We would have said less. We would have pleaded the fifth, but not Jesus. Let's pick it up in Mark 14. And it's a different passage. It's the end of Mark, not the beginning. Mark 14, verse 53. They took Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests, <laughs> the elders, and the teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And there he sat with the guards and warmed, warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then Sim stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, <coughs> I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days we'll build another. Not made with hands. Yet even then, their testimony did not agree. So Jesus remained silent. But then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. And then the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah? Are you the Son of the Blessed One? And this is when Jesus says something that gets him into a lot of hot water. It gets to the core of who Jesus identified as, it, who, how he understood himself, how, who he believed himself to be, which is the central core question of the faith, isn't it? Who is Jesus Christ and how do we respond to him? If he is who he said he was, then it's life altering, eternity altering. But when Jesus was asked this question, he answered directly, very intentionally. He knew the effect his words would have upon his hearers. He knew what response it would provoke. Let's pick it up in Mark 14. 
Jesus said, I am. And you'll see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. And it says that they became very angry, outraged, and they wanted him to be condemned to death. Now, who are the Sanhedrin? And we, we often think of these religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, religious teachers, the scribes, Sanhedrin. We think of them as villains. The Sanhedrin were 71 men who were part of this, this, this uh, kind of council that oversaw religious life uh, in Israel. Uh, and I remember, remember they, they, uh, the Roman Empire had ultimate authority. Uh, but these, these men were given uh, a limited authority over the religious and spiritual aspects of being a Jewish person uh, in Roman territory. It was kind of a way that the Romans could, uh, you know, maybe uh, give them a little bit of peace, throw them a bone so that they would uh, be appeased and, uh, and, you know, and they wouldn't cause a lot of trouble. They have a little bit of, of power, but ultimately the Romans had the authority. But these, these the Sanhedrin, they were, they were community leaders. They were good men. Uh, they, they weren't villains. They, they were respected. They were admired. Uh, they were looked up to. They were role models for a lot of the Jewish people. But wh- so why did they have such a problem with Jesus? Well, there, there's several motives here. One is there's no doubt that their power, the limited power that they had received from the Roman government, they felt threatened by that. You know, if people began to pay attention to Jesus and follow him, then their power diminished. Uh, no doubt as well, there were some who, who um, really were concerned about the overall uh, health of the nation and people that, you know, if Jesus stirred up enough trouble, the Romans might crack down even harder and make life harder for the average Jewish person. But regardless of why they did this, um, it was a kangaroo court. I mean, they bring Jesus there in the middle of the night, which is an illegal thing to do. Uh, he doesn't have legal representation. He has somebody staying up with him, a lawyer. Um, and, 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 and it breeds the place where they want him killed. They want him condemned. Why was that? I mean, they try all sorts of witnesses. They can't get their story straight. And then we come to the climax of the story. They bring in the top dog, the, the high priest, the, you know, the number one lawyer, I guess you could say, on spiritual matters, Caiaphas. And he begins to ask Jesus questions, trying to incriminate him. Jesus remains silent. The second one, Jesus responds to the question of, are you the Christ? Jesus says, I am. The response is swift. It's harsh. It says, the high priest tore his clothes. Why do you need any more witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists and said, prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. What was it that put them over the edge? Jesus claims to be God. He claimed to be God. When I was in college, I was a, took some upper-level uh, kind of history classes where there were grad students and undergrads. And I became friends with a man from Bangladesh. Uh, he was about 10, 12 years older than me, uh, married with kids, but he hadn't been home in several years. He came here to get his, his, his master's and Ph.D. so he could go back, teach, and kind of raise the level of life, quality of life for his family. And uh, he, after a while, he invited me over to his apartment after, towards the end of the semester, and I went over, and, and um, he was a good, good man. He was a Muslim man. He was finishing his prayers. I finished, waited until he was done, and then he served me goat. First time I ever had goat. It was really good, but really, really hot, a lot of curry. Uh, and we had a conversation about God. I mean, he was curious about what I thought. He knew I was a Christian, so we talked about Jesus. And uh, he respected Jesus, good man, 
important prophet, but not greater than Muhammad. And certainly he was not God. You know, a lot of people stumble with this. Many people will say that Christians overstate and misunderstand who Jesus was. He was a great teacher, they'll say. He was an important historical figure, but he wasn't God. Never claimed to be God, which is not true because the Bible, clearly, if you study his words, on several occasions, Jesus makes claims that he is the Son of God, equal to God the Father, such as this passage here in Mark 14. For, for background, um, remember the story of, of Moses in Exodus 3? Um, God speaks to him through a burning bush. And he tells Moses he wants him to go to Egypt and confront Pharaoh and tell them to let their people go. Uh, Moses, uh, understandably, is a little bit reluctant. I mean, who wants to go stand up to the, the leader of the most powerful nation in that part of the world? And so Moses uh, asks this, this voice from the burning, burning bush, um, who shall I say has sent me? In other words, he wants to know who God is. What's your name? He wants to have this connection with, with, with who this voice is. And, and God's response is, I am. I am who I am. This is what you are to say. I am has sent you. And over the years, the people of Israel took that to be God's name. I am or, or Yahweh. And it's such a holy and reverent name that they often wouldn't speak it out loud. Or if they wrote it out, they'd only put the first letter. Wouldn't write it all the way out. It's because it's such a holy and sacred name. And so here's Jesus Responding to this question from Caiaphas, are you the Messiah? He says, I am. I am. It was very clear what Jesus was saying. He was saying he was God's son, that he was divine. And it's very clear in the response of the Sanhedrin that, that they knew that was Jesus' claim as well. We see this in other places in the gospel too. For example, in John, John 5, we find another running, <laughs> another running with the religious leaders over something that Jesus says about himself and his identity. Pick it up in John 5, 21. It'll be on the screen. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives him life, even so the Son gives life in whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So Jesus' response here, again, to angry leaders, was not only, I am the Son of God, I'm equal with the Father, but I have authority over life, over death. I have authority to judge. I have authority to do this. In the Old Testament, the only person who had the authority to judge was God himself. And Jesus here is claiming that that was his job. That, that was his role, his jurisdiction. And the religious leaders want nothing to do with it. Because they don't see him as God. They see him as a man just like themselves. And people generally don't like it when someone else on their level claim, claims to have authority over them. I mean, it would be like if you have uh, you know, some kids and the youngest one always wants to be the boss. Not going to go well, is it? If the youngest one catches the older two doing something uh, and they correct them and say you have to go to timeout, not going to go well, is it? We, we don't like others who we feel are on our level to, to say they have authority over us. And, and Jesus here in, in, in John 5 is saying, I have authority to judge. And the leaders know that that means he's claiming to be God. 
So back to Mark 14, and we see Jesus' answer. He also claims here the same um, authority. You will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. And the right hand of God is the place of authority, of, of, of judgment. So Jesus is saying the same thing he said in John 5. I am the Son of Man, and I will be sitting at the right hand of God, and I have the power and authority to judge, to make judgments about people. Not only am I the Son of God, I am the judge of humankind. And so what that means is that when we stand before God someday, Jesus is the one who will be making the call. There's a um, passage from a book called Men at Work written by George Will, the political writer and a huge baseball fan. Baseball umpires are carved from granite and stuffed with microchips. They are professional dispensers of pure justice. Once when Babe Pinelli called Babe Ruth out on strikes, Ruth made a populist argument. Ruth reasons fallaciously, as populists do, from raw numbers to moral weight. There are 40,000 people here who know the last one was a ball. Pinelli answered with the measured stateliness of a Supreme Court justice. Maybe so, but mine is the only opinion that counts. Same is true for us. On Judgment Day, there's only one opinion, one opinion that counts. And his call is final. And his call is just. He is the only one who claims to have the authority to do that. Back to John 5, this time verse 24. Jesus also makes another claim to authority. Verse 24, I tell you the truth. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. So Jesus here is claiming the authority to give life. Now, just in case anybody here is confused and thinking that we will receive eternal life in a place in heaven by how well we live our lives, let me emphasize, Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus doesn't teach that. He says we will be held accountable for the way we live our lives, whether we produce fruit or not. But the basis of eternal life is not our good works. It's belief in Christ, faith in him and him alone. Jesus says in verse 24, and to emphasize it, he says, I tell you the truth. In other words, listen up. This is the bottom line. He says, if you hear my words and believe that the Father sent me, in other words, if you believe that I am the Son of God, you will be saved. Let me repeat that. If anyone hears Jesus' words and believes he is the Son of God, he or she is saved. If anyone believes that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, that he rose from the dead, he or she is saved. They cross over from death to life. Nothing needs to be added. Jesus alone is able to give life to you and to me. So what are we to do with Jesus? With his claims of divinity. He could have said less when he was pressed to do so. Could have saved his own skin. But he didn't. He claimed to be God. And if he claimed to be God, then we have a decision to make. If he's God, then his words and life must be valued and studied and applied as the most precious thing on earth. If he's God, then the only wise thing to do would be to follow him. If he's God, the only proper response would be to surrender our lives to him. And walk in obedience to him. 
Listen to how C.S. Lewis puts it. It's a famous quote about this. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish things that people often say about Jesus. Things like, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. He goes on. A man who was merely a man said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be a lunatic or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. He concludes, you can shut him up for a fool. You can spit him, kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. Who was Jesus? Who did he claim to be? Our response to this question is, is the most important response we'll ever give. Jesus claimed to be God. He claimed the authority to judge. He claimed the authority to forgive. He claimed the authority to give life. So believe that. Believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Believe that He is the Savior who graciously offers us life when we put our trust in Him. Believe that He is the Lord of lords and the King of kings, that He is God Himself, the Son of God, the one who gave His life for you and me. Believe that, Jesus says. Believe that, the Scripture tells us. And you will be saved. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you and we are grateful for your son, Jesus. We thank you that Jesus' words and life clearly show and demonstrate that he believes himself to be the son of God. Lord, I pray that each person who hears my voice would be clear in their mind and their heart about their response to the question of who is Jesus. Lord, I pray that your spirit would work in each one of us to to work in our lives, to bring us to the place where we put our trust and our faith completely in Jesus, completely in him, in him alone. We thank you for his great love. We thank you for his life. We thank you that he loved us so much he came to us, God in the flesh. We offer ourselves to you in his precious and holy name. Amen.